Have you ever felt that some Bible studies are too much? You know, they're too long, they're too deep, they're too serious, they're too theological, and yeah, maybe they're too boring. <laughs> well, we're going to try to remedy that with this podcast, the Where's God? Finding Him in the Small Stuff Bible Study. We're going to take a close look at Scripture. We're going to look at the cellular base of what God was saying through His Word. But we're not going to make it too much of anything. We're going to try to make it just right for everything. The Bible says that the people who came out of Egypt with Moses, when they entered into the promised land, that some of them began to worship heavenly bodies. They began to worship the sun and the moon and the stars, worshiping created things rather than God, the creator who created them. And the question is, do people today still worship heavenly bodies, the sun, the moon, and the stars? Well, the answer may surprise you. We're going to talk about that and so much more in this episode of Where's God? Finding Him in the Small Stuff Bible Study. Actually, before we turn to Acts, I did want to uh, kind of do a little context here because we've talked a lot about Stephen's plight here in Acts chapter 7. And uh, we have said that if, if you read Acts chapter 6, which we did, that the reason that Stephen is in the place that he is and the difficulty is is in is because he has been accused falsely of blasphemy. So, uh, and he was accused of, of blasphemy against Moses, against God, against the temple, and against the law. There were actually four different things that, you know, as they kind of said, well, if this doesn't stick, maybe this will stick. And if this doesn't stick, maybe that'll stick. And so they kind of come up with this whole uh, plethora of things that they're accusing uh, Stephen of blaspheming about. So I thought, since this is such an important issue, blasphemy, what is, you know, what is that about a little bit? Let's, what does that entail uh, to some extent? Let's look at that. So if you want to look at Leviticus, is where we actually have an example of this <clears throat> taking place. It's uh, Leviticus chapter 24. And uh, it starts in verse 10. So it's Leviticus 24, 10. And uh, the title in my Bible says, A Blasphemer Stoned. And so here is an example of the way it happens. Uh, verse 10 of Le Le Leviticus 24 says, Now the son of an Israelite mother and an Egyptian father went out among the Israelites, and a fight broke out in the camp between him and an Israelite. So you have this 
son of an Israelite mother, an Egyptian father, he goes out among the Israelites and a fight breaks out between him and an Israelite. So verse 11, the son of the Israelite woman blasphemed the name with a curse. So they brought him to Moses. His mother's name was Shelemith, the daughter of Debri, the Danite. Verse 12, they put him in custody until the will of the Lord should be made clear to them. Then the Lord said to Moses, take the blasphemer outside the camp. All those who heard him are to lay their hands on his head. So if you were a witness of the blasphemy, you as a witness had to actually testify by putting your hand on the person who did it to say, yes, I saw this, I heard this, and I'm testifying to that fact by taking part in this punishment. So all those who heard him are to lay their hands on his head, and the entire assembly is to stone him. Say to the Israelites, if anyone curses his God, he will be held responsible. Anyone who blasphemes the name of the Lord must be put to death. The entire assembly must stone him. Whether an alien or native-born, when he blasphemes the name, he must be put to death. So this was a serious claim, a serious accusation to make against someone because the penalty is death by stoning. And uh, I read that today. It says, anyone who curses his God will be stoned, basically. And I think, oh my goodness, today, if that were true... (laughs) Oh my goodness, Jan and I, we have, we try to watch different things on television in the evening, and uh, you know, it's difficult to find something good to watch. I don't know if you have that same problem. We have a low threshold for certain things, and so last night, we, what we tried to do, we tried to find like a series that we can watch for a while, so that we don't have to search for a new one. <laughs> But we run out of the last one we did, which was Little Dorrit, by the way. If you want to see Little Dorrit, that's really good. But anyway, so from Charles Dickens. But anyway, so we were trying to find something new. We turned on this. It was like a series. And I mean, right out of the shoot, the very first scene, we said, oh, my gosh, turn it off. <laughs> and then we turned to something else, another series. We turned it on right out of the series, right right out of this, right out of the, the first thing. We said, oh, my gosh, no, turn it off. We were being assaulted visually and then assaulted verbally by stuff that we just could not, we could not allow ourselves to watch. And I kind of sometimes, um, I don't know if I'm getting off on this, but uh, I, we, we sometimes grieve because our children who are in their 30s, you know, they'll come over and they'll say, have you seen such and such a show? And we'll say, well, I tried to watch it. And there's one especially that takes place in England. And I said to my daughter, I said, I like the show's premise. I like the plot, the arc of the plot. I like the characters. I like the subjects. I like everything about it, but I can't watch it because the language is so awful. And she goes, well, that's just the way they talk in England. And I'm like, so does that make it right? Does that make it okay? She goes, well, that's just, you know, that's, I'm like, I just can't, I just can't see it that way. It, it is not a, something that is relative. It's 
always wrong to me. <laughs> it's not okay in some situations and not okay in others. That's the problem with the world today. It's a world of relativism. Well, it's okay in this situation, in these circumstances. No, if God says it's bad, it's bad, and we don't need to have any part of it. So anyway, all that to say, if we still had the same rule of blasphemy that if you curse the name of God, you would be stoned to death, potentially, I don't know, maybe the world would be a better place, I don't know. But, but anyway, so that, but that is what Stephen is facing, that if he's found guilty, this is what's going to happen. And I, just, I, I think about a minute that, what if you were one of those men who accused him of blasphemy, knowing that you lied about it? Because if you're going to stone someone, those men would have to go and physically put their hands on Stephen's head and say, yes, I heard him say that. And if they do that, they know that they lied about it. And so the blood of Stephen's life would be on their hands. But I don't think they cared about it at that point, because at this point, their whole goal was to just get rid of him and to do whatever it took to do that. So, okay, so that brings us um, to where we are today. And uh, we're going to start, I thought we'd start today in chapter 7, and uh, we'll start with verse 37, which we went over this last week, uh, pretty much all of it, but this will be kind of a, a, play, a way for us to get the context of where we're going to go today in, uh, in today's lesson. So, uh, Acts chapter 7, verse 37, uh, Stephen says, this is that Moses who told the Israelites God will send you a prophet like me from your own people. And we said this is Moses speaking of the Messiah, that the prophet he's talking about is the Messiah. We, we showed where in John chapter 6, the people actually said to Jesus, you're, you're the prophet who is to come. So this was a commonly known thing that where Moses was talking here, he was talking about the Messiah. Verse 38, Moses was in the assembly in the desert with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai, and with our fathers, and he received living words, living words of life, I like to say, the living words of life to pass on to us. But, that means something's coming, but our fathers refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. How could they do it? They told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us as this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt we don't know what has happened to him. And uh, Ruth made a good point that, you know, as long as they had Moses to look at and to see, they felt that God's presence was with them. Uh, but then once Moses kind of disappeared up to Mount Sinai for 40 days, they got nervous because they no longer had Moses to look at. So they wanted to create some other representative of a God who they could see. Uh, and that just goes to, of course, us having faith in a God we cannot see and have not seen. But they, they couldn't deal with that. So verse 41, uh, that is the time they made an idol in the form of a calf. They brought sacrifices to it and held a celebration in honor of what their hands had made. And the word celebration there, again, we get the, it comes from the Greek word that we get the word euphoria. There's this euphoric celebration, kind of out of control celebration in honor of what their hands had made a gold calf. Verse 42, but God, which usually means a good thing's coming, but not in this case, but God turned away 
and gave them over to the worship of the heavenly bodies. So I want to talk just a minute about God turning away. Why do you think God turned away as he watched them in this euphoric celebration of this gold calf uh, where they uh, brought sacrifices to it? Uh, Why do you think God had to turn away? In that, and the idea is that he like turned around. He he turned his back on to what he saw happening. Well, why wouldn't he? <laughs> it's always our choice to worship him. He wants us to come to him. To him, because it's our choice. Because we want to. Not force. Right. Exactly. True. He also said, "No other gods but me." Right. And they were doing that. Right. They put their own will, the Israelites did, they put their own will and desire above, even though they had so much in the past. Right. Yeah, I think that what God was watching was so awful to him. So, I mean, here is a people he loved. Here is a people he created. Here is a people he called out to be his own. Here is a people that he intended to be special and his representatives to the world. These are people that he called out. And not only did he call them out, but he actively participated in freeing them from slavery in Egypt through Moses. He participated in the uh, uh, the plagues. He participated in the Passover. He participated in the manna from heaven. He participated in the water from the rock. He participated in all of this stuff. And here they are at the end of it. And Moses comes up for 40 days to get the law and the Ten Commandments from his written with his own hand. And they turn from him and worship and they make a God purposely, and they worship that God, and they sacrifice it to him, and they have this euphoric celebration, and I think he was just so upset that the people he loved would do that, that he just had to turn away from it. He couldn't watch it. Chuck? Yeah, Romans, the first chapter, verse 21 to 26, explain the whole sequence. Do you have that? Do you have that? Do you want to read it to us? Go ahead. Because they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful. But they became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like the corruptible man, and birds, and four-footed beasts, and creeping things. Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness, to the lust of their hearts, to dishonor their bodies among themselves. You know... It's so much easier to um, worship idols, as it were. It's so much easier for us to want to take matters into our own hands, which is, I think, what Doris was saying there, is that it's so much easier to, to take control of our lives ourselves instead of letting God take control. And we're going to talk about that more in just a minute. Before we get there, though, I'll turn over to Matthew... 27, Matthew 27, keep your finger in Acts, 
I think there was another time when God turned around and turned his back on what was happening. And I think we have it here in Matthew 27, verse 45. It says, uh, let me find it. My own Bible. Okay. 2745. From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over all the land. This was Jesus' crucifixion. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lava sapatini, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the idea there is that for that brief moment, Jesus felt abandoned by God the Father. And the, in the original language, the idea is a, a, a terrible, awful uh, thing of, because you feel that you've been abandoned. This, 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 this is the feeling. And uh, the theological explanation of that is that that was the moment when Jesus took onto himself the sins of the world for everyone past, present, future. At that moment, Jesus became our sacrificial lamb. He took all of our sins, your sins, everybody's sins, onto his shoulders. They were transferred to him. And at that moment, God had to look away for a moment because of how terrible and awful that was to see his beloved son, his only begotten son, to take that on himself. Although he was sinless and didn't deserve it, we sinned and we deserved it, so we got what we didn't deserve, and he got what he didn't deserve. But thank goodness, right? And the idea there is at that moment, Jesus, it was just so so awful that God had to look away for a moment. And I think that's true. Theologically, that's right. But I think there's something else that happened in context of what we see that happened at the base of Mount Sinai in the Old Testament when Moses was up on the mountain. And that is, I think, my own personal think, thinking is, that just like there, where what God's people were, were doing was so awful and terrible that he had to look away for a moment and turn his back on it and not see it, that the same kind of thing, dynamic, was in place at the cross, where here are God's people whom he loved, whom he created, whom he called out, whom he's involved in their lives, whom he sent his only begotten son to save. And what are they doing? They're crucifying his own son. And for that moment, because it was so awful and terrible, the people he loved and were is involved in their lives are crucifying his only begotten son. It was so awful and terrible that it wasn't just the sin that Jesus took, but it was what his people were doing to his only begotten son that he had to turn away and he just couldn't look at it for that brief moment. I think that is the same kind of thing that happened here with the golden calf. It was so awful, so terrible. He had to just turn around and turn his back to it and not look at it for a brief moment. This will just reveal my shallowness, but um, at this point, God had not given him, they hadn't seen the, the Ten Commandments. No. He said, put no other God before me. Yeah. Correct. And the fact was that they actually were worshiping this God. It's just that they made their own image of it. Uh, but it wasn't that they thought the calf was something different. They they were trying to make an image that represented this God that they were serving. And and so um, I can see how they messed up. I guess is what I'm saying. But um, but I, I've never I've never quite. I mean I, I can. Well, well, that's not actually accurate. Um, 
the golden calf actually comes from Egypt. That is a, a god that they have in Egypt as one of the gods, one of the pagan gods. So this golden calf was not to be a representative of Yahweh, oh. the Jewish god, the Hebrew god. That, that was Moses' god. That helps a lot. Yeah, yeah, no. This golden calf was a, a god they had seen worshipped in Egypt. And it says their hearts turned back to Egypt. Well, this is one of the ways that that happened. And their hearts turned back to Egypt so much so they didn't just miss the garlic and the onions, but they also were turning their hearts back to Egyptian gods, like the golden calf. Yeah, exactly. so that's, what, that's why it was so terrible and awful and bad. So that's, I think, uh, a lot of what happens. And why this is so, such a significant thing, and I think I said last week, you know, how bad do you have to be for God to turn his back? On you, oh, terrible, Joe. I think it's a it's a great example of human nature. We have God's timing, and then we have our own timing, and we don't want to listen. We don't want to wait for God anymore. Amen. What's exactly happening? So we're going to do it our way because we can't just sit and wait anymore, and that's human nature. Whether you walk into a church or cathedral or whatever it might be, we all end up doing that in some form in our lives. Oh God, you say you're there, but I've been asking you to do and you haven't done. Right. And then so the children of Israel are in the same boat. Well, our leader is gone, so why should we put our faith in God anymore? Because we're going to do it our way because we've waited and waited and waited and waited and waited. And, and it's like, okay, God, you say you're going to take care and we all get caught up in that. Amen. Well, I'll just give you a personal. This is a be vulnerable to you. Uh, <clears throat> so uh, my job is I'm in sales, and I sell promotional items to sports teams. So if the Reds have a cap day, I try to be the guy that sells them the cap. Or if the Braves have an umbrella day, I try to be the guy that sells them the umbrella. How about the I do bobbleheads. I hate them. I hate doing bobbleheads. They're the worst thing of all. Because, you know, you got to get the hair right and the flesh right and the body right. You know, a bag is a, it's red with a white imprint. It's easy. You know, bobbleheads are terribly hard. Anyway, uh, I hate bobbleheads. And the other thing is, like, if a team does bobbleheads, they don't, like, they don't do one bobblehead. They'll do, like, ten bobbleheads. And they only buy, have one company do all ten so if I don't get that order, I lose 10 orders because if they don't do bobbleheads, maybe they'll do 10 different things. I got 10 chances to get an order, whereas just one with a bobblehead. So anyway. How do you feel about that, Curtis? I really am upset about it. I really. Oh, I hate it. So um, guess what? For a year, there was no sports. Or there were sports drastically reduced in terms of numbers. And when 2020 shut down and there were like nobody going to games, all the things I sold in 2020 were held until 2021. So my sales were down in 2020 because the season was wiped out. And it's also down in 2021 because they just used last year's for this year's. I get paid on a commission only. I have no, no salary. So, you know, the good news is there was an unemployment thing that was, if you were affected like this, you could get some money from unemployment for a while. 
So I qualified for that. And believe me, that money was very important to us to be able to keep food on the table. So, but there was a problem that came up somehow. I have no idea how it happened. In December of 2020, they stopped giving me the money for unemployment because there was some question about something. I don't know. It's a government thing. From December 2020 until August, August 2021, I got zero money from unemployment. So what you're saying about, Joe, about waiting and wondering, my prayer every day is like, God, why? You know, God, when? God, come on, you know? And, you know, day by day, week by week, month by month, and I'm like, God, I am like out of money now. So like either you're going to have to do something or I don't know, I'm going to have to do something, but I don't want to do something. I want you to do something. And literally... The month I was like, this is the last month I can pay my bills. And I'm thinking, okay, God, why is, because everything, everybody I talked to the unemployment office said, oh, you should be getting this money. You should be getting this money. You should be getting this money. I'm not getting the money. Well, that month, that week when I ran out of money, they gave me the money. Yeah. But, but like Joe says, I'm sitting there panicking and I'm, why, why am I, why God, why are you making me wait for this? I don't know why. But what I can tell you is he is faithful and he answered my prayer the way that he wanted to do it at the time. He, and I think what he was saying to me is, Greg, I had you all along. Yeah. I had this under control all along. But I waited just to show you that I wasn't going to leave you out. But I needed you to show that you were willing to wait on me to do what I was going to do all along. But that's what the Israelites are facing here. They're don't want to wait 41 days for Moses to come back. It's 40 days. And they're saying, we're giving up on this guy. We're going to do what we want to do now and what we think we should be doing. So, Greg, one of the points I wanted to make on that, too, was, though, they've not yet been shown how to worship God. I mean, there there was no temple. There was no temple. There was no anything that that would show them what to do. Well, they did have the tent of meeting which Moses was uh, bringing along with them. But you're right. I mean, in terms of, but they certainly knew not to worship a golden calf. That they certainly knew was, I mean, I mean, they turned their back, but they certainly had to know that uh, this was not what Moses was wanting them to do. You know, not what Moses' God was wanting them to do. So, okay. So, so, but they did it, right? And so then they did this thing. And so God had to turn his back on it. And then it says, he gave them over to the worship of the heavenly bodies. And I want to spend a minute on that too, because worshiping the heavenly bodies, that means they were worshiping the sun, they were worshiping the moon, they were worshiping the stars. And why would they do that? Uh, why do you worship anything? What? Anything but God. <laughs> well, even worship, even why even do you worship God? There's a reason you worship something, whether it be the real true God or a pagan God or the stars and the sun and the moon. The reason you worship them is because you feel they have some influence over your life, right? 
You worship the things that you feel, or the thing, or the one that you feel has some influence over your life. One of the reasons we worship God is because we believe he has influence over our lives. And so what they were basically doing was they were worshiping not only this golden calf that their hands had made, but now they're worshiping also the sun and the moon and the stars, the heavenly bodies, because they believed that those things had some influence or control over their lives. What now, influence what's that? What influence did the calf have? Well, he was just, you know, the way the pagan gods were, certain gods had certain, like there was a god of fertility, and there was a god of, uh, you know, whatever. They're all different gods. Just, so the god, the, I don't know what the golden calf represented, but some god of something, you know, that they needed. But... Today, is anyone worshiping the sun and the moon and the stars? Yes, yeah. yes and no. Yeah. Oh, I don't mean me, but I mean Doris, is that you were you were pretty quick on that? Yes, there, Doris. That's all I'm gonna say. <laughs> present company excluded. <laughs> present company excluded. Stand. There's more reason than that, too, to worship God. I, I'm, oh, sure. I was about to say that's one of the reasons. Yeah, a, I can't get past Paul's uh, discussion that how can you look around at the complexity and diversity of this world and the complexity of just the human body? There's like 40 million cells, and they're all coordinated, all doing exactly what they're supposed to do, and then say, well, uh, there's no God. I mean, it's just... Uh, I'm. I'm, I'm just in awe of God. Right. But you hit the exact point. Is They worship a golden calf that their hands had made, and then they're worshiping the sun and the moon and the stars that God had made. Instead of worshiping the God who made them, they worship the created thing instead of the creator who created them. Again, something they can see, you know, not something that they can't see. Joe? And one of the things we've got to take a look at, even before the children of Israel, when you look at all civilizations, that uh, especially the old, when you look at the Aztecs and everything, they worship these things because it gave them a calendar of when to sow seeds, when to, and they looked at this kind of stuff, and it's just a human nature, where, again, with we got to look historically, it was always there, even before we have what we have in the scriptures here. But if you look at all these native, because I watch History Channel, and I watch a lot of that kind of stuff, and how that, when we look at America even, the whole continent, not just the United States, but go all the way through, they worshiped a sun god, they worshiped a moon god, they worshiped the stars. They knew there was some higher power, but they didn't quite understand it but it gave them a way of living. So what's happening here, I think, with the Israelites, yeah, they're, they're still not sold on God. So you hear, well, we worship this and worship this, and, and they've taken that to heart because it's an easier thing to do because it, it makes a little bit more sense. Well, again, it's something you can see versus something you cannot see. And again, this is reflective of Egypt. This is the way. And so it says, it's very important not to miss. It says that, you know, their hearts went back to Egypt in every way, including in the way they wanted to worship. To bring it to today, though, 
I think you're right, yes and no, about people worshiping stars, the heavenly bodies today. I would say in terms of worshiping as a god, maybe not. But there are still people today who do believe that the stars and the moon and the sun, the heavenly bodies, have influence over their lives, right? Yeah, like Doris. <laughs> like Doris, yeah. <laughs> but today we call it astrology, right? It's astrology. Uh, and people who believe that believe that there's a certain juxtaposition of the stars and the moon and the sun and all of that that have an influence over your life. And so they follow those things, right? And there are people who believe, well, you know, I was born a well, Sagittarius, so this is the way I am. No, no. That is not the way you are because of you were born under some sun sign. I mean, seriously. Uh, so if God turned his back on people who were worshiping the sun and the moon and the stars, how does he feel about people who are following astrology today? Here's what I looked up astrology in the Merriam-Webster Dictionary. It says astrology, the divination, in other words, the prediction uh, the divination of the supposed influences of the stars and planets on human affairs. So this is no different. I mean, if you follow astrology and a horoscope and all of that nonsense, then you're no different than worshiping that. You're following it. You believe that those things, those heavenly bodies, have an influence over your life, and that's why you follow them. But God says, no. No, the stars and the moon and the sun don't have an influence over your life. I do. The, whether you were born a Sagittarius or Capricorn or Pisces, or whatever, that has nothing to do with who you are. I have everything to do with who you are. You don't trust your future to the stars and the sun and the moon. You trust your future to me. So I'm just saying this. If you read your horoscope, stop. Even if you're just doing it for fun, stop. Okay, because you're allowing Satan a little. Yes, exactly. How about reading my fortune cookie? No. <laughs> I, I, I have given up looking at fortune cookie fortunes. No. So fortune tellers, uh, mystics, uh, tarot cards, Ouija boards. Horoscopes, no, have nothing to do with any of them. Even fortune cookie horoscopes, or I don't even look at those fortunes. I don't look, no, because you just don't. You can eat the cookie. Yeah. Believe me, I'm all for eating the cookie. Eating the cookie is fine. Just don't read the fortune. That's all. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that's the point. You know, that's not something we should be involved with. It's not pleasing to God, and that's not what He wants us to do. So let's be sure we don't get involved in that. Yeah, sure, Beth. Sure. Um, years ago, when I was very young, my parents were away, and and I stayed with an aunt and uncle. And uh, my aunt and uncle were Catholics. Or they thought they were. Um, and they invited me to go with them to their neighbor. Well, their neighbor had this thing in, the, in, the, in their living room. It was like, like a Ouija board. And I, I'm telling you, I wasn't five or six years old. And uh, I was playing with their little girl, and, and my aunt 
called me over and she said, come on, honey, just put your hand down here and, and do this. And I just had this feeling, no. I, I remember that. I knew nothing about anything. She said, no. I, no. She said, Beverly, it, it's just a game. I, 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 no. And I wouldn't do it. Yeah, good for you. And I back on that after all these years. And the Lord was with me, even though I was a little kid and didn't know anything, you know. Yeah, then, you just had a spiritual reaction to yeah, it. Yeah, I did. I give an example of something that happened to me. Uh, I used to travel a lot on business. I used to go actually travel and visit uh, these teams before we had Zoom and all that. And I was in uh, Norfolk, Virginia one time, and I was staying in a hotel. I'd been out for dinner, and I came back, and I noticed uh, a stack of looked like papers, like newspaper kind of thing, uh, just in the vestibule there. And I said, oh, I'll, 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 I'll grab one of these and maybe have local news or whatever. I'll go up and read it tonight and I'll go up into my room. So I went into my room and I started reading it. It didn't take me long to realize that this was, and this is big up in there, uh, it was like uh, one of those Wiccan publications about witchcraft and all of that. I didn't read very much of it, but I read enough to understand what it was and then I put it aside. Went to bed that night, and about, I don't know, 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning, I woke up deathly ill. I was vomiting and everything else. And I'm convinced it was a spiritual reaction to allowing that into my presence. Even it was accidental, it still had that terrible influence on me that this was just satanic in every way. And it just physically affected me in a bad way. So I do believe that can happen. I had... uh... (laughs) In my younger years, um, two friends, they were both guys, who really wanted to do Ouija board on a regular basis. I didn't think anything of it at those days. I thought, sure, let's do it. You cannot believe what came out of that. No, I can. We really got messages. One time it said, I, it was usually in my apartment that we did it, and I had a little balcony. It said, go to the balcony and look out. We went there in this, this, this shot of something like a comet or something mm. came flying down. Mm. The next time, one, one other time it said, my cat had passed away. Mm. And um, and the cat was talking on the Ouija board. Mm. And the cat said, go into the bedroom and look, I had a chaise. All of her toys were there. They, were, they had been up behind the, 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 in a cabinet behind the refrigerator in the kitchen. I mm. put them up there. Mm. They were laying out on the chaise. Mm. I mean, we're, so, Really, yeah, and, and it talked about dead people in the walls that had died when the building was built. It, it was just creepy. And, um, uh, and it's all satanic. It's all satanic. It's all satanic. I, I, I mean, we thought it was fun in those days. Right. Oh, this is kind of fun. And the more it can do things that you say, oh, well, it did come true, just like with a fortune. Well, it did come true, it did happen. Well, that's satanic too because Satan uses those to entice you away from God. You know, he'll give you a little bit of proof to get you off of just devoting yourself to God entirely. And the Ouija board is especially uh, a a trap for people because it's sold by Milton Bradley. You know, it's a game. No, it's not. It's a very serious thing, and you should not play around with it. So. And ultimately, it's our desire to know the future, to know, the, you know, yeah, exactly. uh, it's, it's humanism. Yeah. You know. Same thing we were saying, we want control. We want to be the ones, and we don't want to just let God be God in our lives, you know. So well, I became convinced that one, one of the guys was the one that had the evils. 
But again, it's that spiritual sensitivity that you have, you know. So, Chuck? Yeah, I think it's somewhere in Leviticus, but it says that you you can test these so-called prophets. And if they are 1% off... Ain't from God. Ain't from God. They can be right 99 times, but the one time they're wrong, then they're not God's spokespeople. Exactly. Truly. Okay, so let's move on. Uh, So then he goes on to say, uh, at the end of verse 42, this agrees with what is written in the book of the prophets. And this is from uh, Amos, from the prophet Amos. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings 40 years in the desert, O house of Israel? The answer to the question is no. Uh, Yet, I like to put yet, yet you have lifted up the shrine of Molech, that was a god who wanted the sacrifice of children through fire, and the star of your god, Rephan, which uh, is actually not a star, it's actually the planet Saturn that they were worshiping, but back then they didn't tell the difference between planets and stars, they all looked like stars. So this right here is an example of worshiping the stars. You know, Rephan is a star god. The idols you made to worship. So they made idol. they made a shrine to Molech, and they made idols of this god, Rephan, and that's what they were worshiping. Therefore, I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. And we said at the time that this was um, written in Amos, the exile to Babylon was prophecy. It was something that was going to happen in the future. But by the time Stephen is saying it, it's history. It actually did happen exactly as uh, Amos said it would happen. And God said it would happen through Amos because of their idolatry. This is why it happened. So um, one thing, too, just as an aside— the we talked before about Stephen being a Greek, a Greek, Grecian Jew, and that he spoke the Greek language, and that he read the Greek language, but he probably didn't speak Hebrew and didn't read Hebrew, and uh, that was where very first started this whole subject with Stephen. Well, this this uh, where he talks about Amos, he recites this passage from Amos, is further proof of that because this particular translation of Amos is from the Septuagint. It is not from the Hebrew text, because there's a slight difference between the Hebrew text of Amos and the Greek translation of Amos. And so this specific translation that Stephen recites here is from the Greek translation of the Septuagint, which further solidifies our belief that Stephen was a Greek-believing Jew uh, he was he was a, a, a Grecian Jew who spoke Greek and read Greek, not Hebrew. So this is a further evidence of that. Okay, so verse 44. Our forefathers had the tabernacle of the testimony with them in the desert. It had been made as God directed Moses, according to the pattern he had seen. Having received the tabernacle, tabernacle our fathers under Joshua, and we're transitioning now from Moses to Joshua, so Moses to Joshua, uh, they had our fathers under Joshua brought it with them when they took the land from the nations God drove out before them. It remained in the land until the time of David. Now we've fast forwarded from Joshua all the way to David until David, who enjoyed God's favor and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. Now we're up to David, and but it was Solomon. Now we're going up to Solomon, but it was Solomon who built the house for God. So here we've been spending all this time in Abraham and Moses, and now in the span of two or three verses, we've gone all the way from Moses to Solomon. 
Aren't we flying now? We're flying. Okay. So he says here in verse 47, it was Solomon who built a house for him. And up to this point now, the Sanhedrin members who are listening to Stephen's defense here and his argument, there has been nothing that they would object to. Nothing. That they, everything that Stephen has said up to now, they would agree with, from Abraham to Joseph to Moses to Joshua to David to Solomon. They're all on board with all of this. He's taken them from uh, the time when the Hebrews were worshiping in the tabernacle in the wilderness to worshiping God in a temple in Jerusalem. And all through this whole journey that he's been taking them on during this entire uh, speech, they're like... Maybe this guy isn't so bad after all. There's really nothing here that we can, you know, criticize or disagree with. What, what's the big deal? So that's up to verse 47. But look at verse 48. What's the first word? Things are about to change. Things are about to change. Up till now to verse 47, they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then in verse 48, he's going to pull out his pointy finger. And he's going to start pointing his finger at the Sanhedrin members. And now all of a sudden, they're not going to be big fans of Stephen anymore once we get into verse 48. So I think that's where we'll stop today with just the, let's just look for uh, just a quick second uh, in verse 51 Stephen says, you stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. Yeah, no longer a fan of Stephen, the Sanhedrin will be, after we get into, after we get into verse 48 and beyond. So put on your seatbelt next week. We're going into rough, choppy uh, air, rough, choppy waters. And uh, this is where Stephen turns the tide on the Sanhedrin. He's going to say to them from verse 48 on, that it's not me, it's you. It's not me who blasphemed, it's you. And it's the same way that sometimes pastors do sermons. They're like, oh yeah, I agree with what you're saying, I agree with what you're saying, I agree with what you're saying. And all of a sudden they come to the end of the sermon and they say, but you, and you realize, well, that didn't, that doesn't, I don't like that. <laughs> but sometimes we don't like what God says. But as obedient children, we need to be on God's side, not our own side, right? And so that's what Stephen does. He's lulled him into the sense of security, and he's about to blow it all up uh, in the next well, next week. We'll find out what, what that all entails. So, Okay, folks, that's all I have today. Praise the Lord. Thanks for all your great input today. It's wonderful. That concludes this episode of Where's God? Finding Him in the Small Stuff Bible Study. I pray that you've learned something new about the Lord today, and He's given you some new insight into who He is and how much He loves you. Remember, the eternal God is our refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. 
May in that refuge today and those everlasting arms, you find the provision that you need, the protection that you need, the power that you need, and through those, the peace that you need. Remember, he said, my peace I give you. Peace be with you. Shalom.